Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. On today's episode, we will talk to Travis Goff, Athletic Director, University of Kansas, a guy who... uh, Pretty much been crushing it the last two years, really ever since he took over at Kansas. I mean, I would imagine his approval rating for Kansas fans is about as high as it could possibly be. So we're going to talk to him about these last two years, specifically about the last year at the University of Kansas with the basketball success winning the national championship, Kansas football becoming one of the feel-good stories in the sport. This season, the contract extension with Lance Leipold, his relationship with his head coach. There's a lot to unpack there and a lot of cool stuff to discuss with Travis Goff. We'll do that coming up here in a bit. I think you guys are really, really going to enjoy this interview. I will say this, maybe the worst ending to an interview in my professional career. How's that for a teaser? I will say this, I want to uh, recuse... Travis of any wrongdoing there it's the worst ending to an interview of my career and it's 100% my fault I'm not going to tell you any more than that you're going to have to listen and when you hear it I think you're probably going to know what's going on I want to do something a little bit different we're going to do a mailbag later on in the show I'm trying to get away from having some sort of big grand take after every single game this season Because there isn't a a big sweeping conclusion that you come to every single week in college basketball. There's too many games. That's more of an NFL thing, and even then it's a little bit silly. It's just that you have seven games to talk about it in between each game or college football, right? You have have seven days in between the next game. Therefore, you got to talk about something, and those games feel magnified. The more games you have the less important each of them feel. Like, baseball is the ultimate sign of that. So, I'm trying not to do that, but knowing me, I probably will come to one. So, I want to just do more recap, and when there is a big conclusion to come to, I want to reach it. I don't think that was necessarily the case with KU's loss to Kansas State on Tuesday. I know some people disagree, but I just want to kind of hash it out, and then if we come to a a big conclusion, we will, but I want to do more of just, like, my sort of thoughts from watching the game and where I think this this team is at now, what is it, six games into Big 12 play? I want to start with the end. So we'll kind of work our way back with 
I think the moment that everybody was talking about afterwards, which was Bill Self calling the timeout with six seconds left on the shot clock, two seconds later after the play was whistled dead, or one second later, Jalen steps into a deep three, buries it, which would have obviously impacted the outcome of the game. KU ends up losing, and Bill Self was sort of criticized afterward for calling that timeout, and not just that. Uh, the play before at the end of the regulation when they dump it down low to Zach Clemens and everybody's kind of thinking, like, why is this the play that you're running? I've been covering Kansas basketball for about 10 years in some capacity or another. And the one line that there are a few things that you just kind of get used to hearing people say. And one of the things, and this doesn't happen very often, but whenever people want to be critical of Bill Self, they'll kind of say this thing, which is, Listen, he's a great coach, right? It's kind of like it's trying to soften the blow when you tell someone he's a great guy, but I'm I'm just I don't know if I want to date him right now, right? It's like I, Bill Self's a great coach. He's a Hall of Famer, one of the best ever. Okay, where's the butt? But even he makes some mistakes from time to time. It's like yeah, no I, I, no shit. He he and everybody else. On the face of the planet, right? Yes, we know he's not perfect. But in doing that, you're kind of trying to break down the mistakes that he made. And he messed up here. It used to be used a lot for playing the wrong guys. People would say that about like guys like Cliff Alexander or or Sheck Diallo. Like, hey, Bill Self's great, but he's not great with freshmen, right? He's got to let these big guys play through their mistakes. So by the time that March rolls around, they're ready to go. I have heard that line a thousand times and usually it's incorrect people don't take into account you know the impact that guys who aren't ready have on the other four guys on the court but that's neither here nor there the the claim that was made the other night was bill self was great but he was terrible at the end of game he was terrible with the play calling he was terrible with the timeout that's one of the worst games i've ever seen bill self coach okay let's calm down just a little bit here were you super comp like were you just pumped when you were watching Jalen step into a 30-footer with the game on the line? Tell you what, I certainly wasn't. And as good as Jalen has been this year, he's been incredible. The dude's a workhorse. Like, he just grinds out these games and finds a way to make his impact felt. I love Jalen. He's having an incredible season. He's having a historical season. But that's not the shot that anybody draws up. And if you look at the way that that play ran out, like, right, you had a, you had a set, you were looking for a certain look, you didn't get it. You kind of pull things back out. That is the situation where Bill Self calls a timeout 100% of the time. 100% of the time. And here, here is why I had an issue with people sort of being overly critical of Self in that situation. It's so, it's so hindsight 2020 because if that shot clanks off the rim, then we're not having this discussion. We're saying, okay, yeah, that's, let's, let's get a play. Bill Self, best, you know, sideline out-of-bound play caller in college basketball, one of the best of all time. Like, he gets lauded for that maybe more than any other aspect of coaching. That's the, that's the situation where you want him to call a timeout. And so I, I wonder, why don't, anybody, why, don't, why don't I ever hear people criticizing him every single other time when it's a late-game situation and he calls a timeout? Because this is not just a Bill Self thing. It's a college basketball thing. I've said this for years. College basketball coaches suffocate games with timeouts in those situations. 
and I don't know if it is um, an ego thing. I don't know if it is just thinking that you're always the smartest guy in the room. But it doesn't make any sense to me because Harvard actually did a study about this. I got into an argument and found a study from about six years ago. This was with a, a coworker at the time that in, in those situations in college basketball, like studies have shown when you call a timeout in those situations, it actually benefits the defense more than it does the offense because the defense needs to get set more than the offense needs to get a set play. If especially if you're the more talented team, which I believe KU to be. Now, at that juncture in the game, you didn't have your full complement of players, so I get it, and you already were running a set, and it didn't result in a good look. So I guess I can see both sides of the coin, but I just want us to be consistent here because if you have a problem with Bill Self calling a timeout in that situation, then I think you need to be critical of him and all college coaches calling timeouts in those situations all the time because I'm telling you, they do it all the time. And every single time I am sitting there muttering under my breath, watching on the TV saying, don't call a timeout, don't call a timeout because it almost never works. It almost never, I shouldn't say it never works. It almost never gives you the advantage because that defense, they need the timeout more than you do, especially after a made basket. Like that's really I think the worst time to call a timeout is an offense. The other team makes a made basket. There's 20 seconds left. Put the ball in and let them run. And I think coaches are maybe getting a little more open to it, including Bill Self. But these guys, man, they are they are so hyper-focused on the details that they think they've always got the play to run. And in that situation, hindsight being 2020, of course Bill Self wishes he hadn't called the timeout. But that's the same equivalent of saying no, 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 no when a guy's taking a bad shot and then it goes in and you go, yes. Right, that's exactly what happened. And I'm not saying that was a bad shot for Jalen. You live and die by him. I totally understand that argument. But we got to be consistent with it. Because if you're going to be critical of Bill Self doing it on Tuesday night, then let's be critical of he and every other basketball coach who does it. Again, every single time a game finds itself in that situation. So, in conclusion... Bill Self, great coach. He's a Hall of Famer. But whenever you find yourself saying that, just give it a day. You know, the takes don't always have to be sent out right away. You don't always have to weigh in on every single situation. In fact, more often than not, you shouldn't weigh in. Because if you give it 24 hours and then revisit that opinion, I'm guessing it might change just a little bit from how you're feeling in the immediate aftermath of what was a crushing loss, because that's exactly what it was, not because the season is over, but because of who it came against and where it happened at. All right, a few housekeeping items from this game. First things first, uh, loudest rims ever at Bramlage, or was it just that they had 17 microphones on that rim on one side of the court? Clank! Clank! The loudest clanks every single time uh, three-pointer rimmed out for KU. Like, it was it, it was like shoving ice picks in my ear. That was so tough to listen to. So we need to launch an investigation. Uh, I don't know. Call the IARP and have them go down there and maybe look into it. I don't have anything better to do. Jalen Wilson with 38 points. I know a lot of people wish it would have been 41. This guy, we I debuted the noticeability index. If uh, 
I think Remy Martin was the impetus for for debuting the Noticeability Index. Noticeability doesn't necessarily this is completely a a creation of my mind. Noticeability has nothing to do with level of play. It just has to do with how much you know you are obviously on the court when you're on the court, right? There are some guys who, who score really low on the noticeability index. Guys who sort of fade into the corner. You don't notice them sometimes. This team's got a lot of really noticeable guys. Like Bobby Fettiford's probably like lower on the noticeability index. Last year, when I debuted this, Remy Martin was, you know, scoring sky-high numbers, like numbers that we had ever seen before. Jalen Wilson's given him a run for his money, and it's always in a positive way. This guy, when he is on the court, is the most noticeable player in college basketball because he is involved in everything. The efficiency numbers for this guy aren't great, but the workload that he carries for this team is unlike anything I have ever seen in my time watching Kansas. And the first season I can remember watching Kansas would have been 1997, right? The year, the year before uh, LaFrance and Pierce left. Goes back quite a ways. I don't remember a player ever being so noticeable or carrying a workload like the one Jalen is carrying this year. I know people want to see him shoot less. They want to see Grady Dick shoot more. That's on Grady Dick. I'll tell you that right now. Grady needs to assert himself. And at some point between now and the end of the season, you want Kansas to be a legit title contender because they're in the mix. But they're not at the very top. There are teams, I think, who are more ready-made to win a title right now. Kansas can get there, but it relies on Grady Dick. Somebody has to pull him aside or he needs to sort of understand himself that if this team wants to become a national title contender, he is going to have to stop deferring to others. He's going to have to start hunting his shot. And I think we've seen it a little bit more over the last couple of days, but you cannot let that guy get dejected. You can't let him get down on himself. He got free a little bit more against K-State than he has in some other games, but in those games where they're face guarding you and you got a guy sort of on your hip for 40 minutes, he has to find a way to get around that because your KU's maybe most uh, important offensive player. There can't be stretches where you're just taken out of the game because one guy is sort of shadowing you around the court. Fran said this. No, Fran's not a very popular guy today, but he did say something in the broadcast that sort of got my attention. And I had just been thinking it because every time there is sort of a lazy pass or a an offensive rebound that gets tipped out, like this team does the tip drill very well, right? They don't always get two hands on those boards, but they're always tipping the ball up. This team gets every 50-50 ball. When you talk about defense and sort of identities, and I think that that defensive backcourt is the best in the country, I've said this several times. I'm going to keep saying it for those in the back who didn't hear me. Kevin McCuller is the best perimeter defender KU's ever had. Yes, I know that sounds sacrilegious. Marcus Garrett was the national defensive player of the year. Marcus was more of like a shutdown. I'm just going to kind of lock you down, and he could take over games for stretches purely based on what he was doing defensively. They're different style defenders, but the activity level by Kevin McCuller getting his hands in passing lanes, turning those 50-50 balls into two points on the other side, the way that he'll be like backpedaling and sort of just snatch the ball from somebody, never seen anything like it. That dude is an absolute bona fide stud, superstar defender. He paired with Dewan is electric, and that is a, a big reason why Kansas's offense is so efficient because 
they're turning defense into offense. It's cliche, but this team is the epitome of that. And they get every single 50-50 ball. The ball is tipped up in the air. The ball is deflected. They're always coming away from it because they have length. They have activity. And I think most importantly, they have bought into the idea that that is going to be the way that they're going to win basketball games. They're just a bunch of grinders, man. There's a reason they keep winning these close games. They didn't win that one on Tuesday, but you look at their record on the season in those those one-score games, uh, it's pretty remarkable. That's tough to, to sustain unless that's an identity that you've bought into, which I think it, it certainly had. So there were two kind of questionable uh, foul calls, the one against McCuller that he fouled out on. And then there was another one against Grady. And anybody who's been listening to me for any amount of time, I, you, I am the last person on the planet who will ever be foul call guy. I'd almost never complain about fouls. I almost never complain about Kansas not getting the whistles. Those were two bad ones. Those were two bad ones late in the game. And those are the ones that are that are crucial because they do swing the flow of the game in those late game situations. So I'm not going to go on a big rant on it, but to act like those don't have massive impacts on the outcome of games would be disingenuous as well. And I, I don't know. There's nothing really to do about it, but those were bad calls that, that definitely had an impact on the game. I want to say one thing here about, about the culture of Kansas State because that's been a big talking point this week with Jerome Tang and his comments, which we're going to get to. Uh, we can talk all about the culture. We can talk all about Bramlage and, and the game day atmosphere 24 seconds left on the clock. Tie game in regulation. And they're coming out of timeout with welcome to the jungle. You know, Jerome Tang seems hell-bent on changing the culture at K-State. He wants to weed out the FKU chance, right? He wants to, to be about K-State and not about the team that they're playing. And listen, we can get into KU in a second. Is Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses the worst song? Is it a bad song? No. Is it the best song that you could play in the biggest moment of that arena against your in-state rival, tie ball game, two top 15 teams? Like, is that the song that you really wanted to play coming out of that timeout to get that building juiced? I was I was getting into a discussion about this with my girlfriend on on, on Tuesday night. I go, they're playing Welcome to the Jungle, twenty four seconds left, and she said they, they play Thunderstruck at Allen Fieldhouse in late game situations. They do, but it is a techno version of Thunderstruck, which I actually think could be worse. Here's the real conversation that needs to be had: Do these arenas have four songs that they're allowed to play all season long? KU plays that the hum song 29 times. And I'm not saying I hate the song. I'm saying maybe get a more diverse catalog. Let's get like 10 songs in there. Because I've been at games where they get really tight late and then they'll go to overtime. And they'll play the same two songs for like 12 straight out of timeout like hype situations. But we got to get a bigger catalog here. And, it's just, and, and these songs aren't even, like, great. There's a couple, you know, they'll play that Meek Mill song. They'll play the Kendrick Lamar song. Those are great. We just, we need a diverse catalog. Because I, can, I know they got great people in the game day and the, I don't know, who's in charge of that Rock Chalk video. They got a little DJ over there. It's like, I mean, Thunderstruck, 
Welcome to the Jungle. Like, it is 2023. Like, there's a reason I don't hear arenas playing She's My Cherry Pie coming out of timeouts. But if that's the road we want to go down, then we can do that as well. I also, by the way, that game, I get it, bad foul calls. I, had, I, was, I was just enjoying the game. I was enjoying this tight game between two in-state rivals. Like, that game lived up to the billing. And then I said that on Twitter, like, wow, college basketball rules. And then I had people in my mentions saying, what are you watching? This game doesn't rule. This game sucks. Okay, what are we doing here? Am I allowed to just like things? Am I allowed to just enjoy the product that I'm watching? I know that you may not like it because you don't like the way the fouls are being called. First off, I don't care about the free throw discrepancies. I don't care about the free throw discrepancies at Allen Fieldhouse. When you're a KU fan, there are just a few things that you've just got to deal with from other fan bases. They're going to always give you shit about KU getting calls at Allen Fieldhouse. And you can share the free throw numbers and they're all accurate and that's fine. And you may be on the right side of this. I'm just telling you that you get a lot of perks as being a Kansas basketball fan. The downsides are the fact that you're going to catch shit from a lot of other fan bases. But I'd rather have it that than being the fan base that always has to talk shit on everybody else because you're the fan base that's only relevant once every five years. Kansas is the fan base that's relevant every single year. You're going to get everybody's best shot. That just comes with the territory there. I hate that loss. That loss stung. That was one I really, really wanted to have. But I think there's a silver lining to glean from that big picture. Because when you lose to Kansas State, a team that's been relevant like once every four or five years, and they've had good runs under Huggins and Frank Martin and even Bruce Weber, you don't want to lose to that team. But that's the type of game that makes the next time they match up twice as good. When K-State comes to Lawrence here in a couple of weeks, that game just got way more exciting. The atmosphere in Allen Fieldhouse is going to be at a 14. May have been at 11 before. Now it's going to be at a 14 because of the fact that K-State won that game. In rivalries, those types of games, you almost want, like you want to beat the shit out of K-State every time you play them. But every once in a while, you know, it is good for the rivalry when little brother gets a win. Because then it gets you fired up. Now you want to beat them even worse the next time you play them. And it's the type of game that stokes the flames of this rivalry. I believe the sign of a good rivalry is two things. You hate the other team not because of the coach or the players, but just for what they stand for. You kind of hate the fans and what they stand for. And it also, the second part is that it brings you anxiety or even before the game is played, the anxiety that you're anticipating about how it's going to feel to lose to that team. If you don't care about losing to a team... The way that, like, if, if Iowa State upset KU, you'd say whatever. If Oklahoma upset KU, you'd say whatever, one-off, bad night. You lose to K-State of Missouri, it stings a little bit because you just don't want to lose to those assholes, right? That is the sign of a rivalry. And for the longest time, it hasn't mattered with K-State because if they beat you, it's been kind of like those other teams. Well, they suck, so you got your one win. Now we'll rip off eight in a row against you. K-State... Kind of proved to the world on Tuesday that, hey, we're legit. Not just a hot little start. Not like a cute little story here. 
We're going to be around for a while. That gives me a little anxiety. If Jerome Tang's going to stick around, who knows if he will. He won't have any shortage of suitors this offseason. I would be a little bit concerned about the future of that program from a KU point of view. From a K-State point of view, I would feel phenomenal about this guy being at the helm. And this is where I want to close it because Jerome Tang had the comments the night before the game at the press conference and then after the game. That man is hell-bent on weeding out the fuck KU chance while they play Sandstorm. I don't know if it's ever going to work because you're really just talking to students here. You gotta be, let's be, make one thing clear. If you're a KU fan and you're not really sure how it's going down, I'll break it down for you. It's the students who are doing it. And there may be a smattering of people outside of the student section, but just watch the game from uh, Missouri and Arkansas on Wednesday night. Mizzou is doing fuck KU chants in games where KU's not even playing, and K-State does that as well. But it's all the student section. And it's really tough to legislate how kids are going to be fans. You just don't have a lot of control over what they're going to be able to do. So I applaud Jerome Tang's effort. And for the most part, I haven't seen many K-State fans being critical of him trying to get kids to stop. I don't know if it's going to be successful. But this guy is literally telling you, hey, I want your program, this program that I'm new to, but you've been a fan of your whole life. I want it to be taken seriously. I want it to be a respectable program. And when you've got however many thousand students in the section screaming, fuck KU, in games not just where KU's playing, but where other teams are in the arena, it makes you sound unhinged. It, it, it's literally the equivalent of waving your arms in the air and saying, don't take us seriously as a basketball program because this is the type of shit that we do. And if you are somebody who is saying, and if you, I mean, no K-State fans listening to this, but if you're saying like, no, we're not willing to do that, we're going to keep doing it at least for the KU games, you are telling, you are saying we would rather have this stupid little unhinged bit be our thing than be taken seriously as a basketball program. And I'll tell you this right now, if that's the hill you're going to die on, you will never be taken seriously you will never be a respectable college basketball program. If you're a K-State fan, you may hate KU fans. You may think we're obnoxious, we're smug, we are holier than thou. There's some truth to that. And you know what? Fuck it. That's the territory that comes with being as historically great as KU has been. They may yell bullshit at calls. They do the rip your effing head off at the beginning of football games. They're not yelling fuck KU for 30 sec. Fuck K-State, fuck Mizzou at all. During games, it's kind of like that that Don Draper line in Mad Men. We don't think about you at all. And for Jerome Tang, man, if that's the hill you're going to battle on, kudos to you. I would listen to what this guy has to say if I'm a K-State fan. Because for the first time in a very long time, you have a guy not just that knows what he's doing, but you have a guy who wants to elevate your basketball program. Might listen to what he's having to say. Travis Goff, athletic director for Kansas, is my guest today. He is a little under two years on the job. He was hired in, I believe, spring of 2021. Since then, he hired a football coach, Lance Leipold, who you may have heard, having a pretty successful go of things two years in. He gave him a contract extension before the 2022 season, which went so well that he gave him another 
contract extension near the end of the 2022 season. He has made other hires for Kansas baseball as well as women's golf. He is starting a fundraising campaign or has started a fundraising campaign to add renovations, not just to Kansas Memorial Stadium, but to the Anderson Family Football Complex as well as Allen Fieldhouse. I guess as a side note, Kansas basketball won a national championship. Needless to say, things have been going pretty well ever since KU got this guy. I was talking to someone last week in the athletic department, and we were just sort of discussing how things were 10 years ago, things were five years ago compared to the vibes. The vibes are immaculate around Kansas athletics right now. And the guy told me, he goes, isn't it crazy the difference that one guy can make? And I know Travis Goff would never take all the credit for it, but you want to talk about the buck stopping here? The guy at the top has to ultimately answer for everything. And right now, Travis Goff isn't having to answer for much because everything seems to be coming up aces for the Kansas Athletic Department right now. I've been waiting to talk to this guy for a while, and what better time with everything that's going around the department. I think you're going to enjoy it. The ending... I didn't exactly stick the landing here. You'll know it when you hear it. Here is my conversation with KU Athletic Director Travis Goff. We're recording this, by the way, on a Wednesday, and last night was quite an entertaining installment of the Sunflower Showdown. I saw you you sitting there in Manhattan. Did you get home all right? Did you get out of there safe and sound? Sitting there painstakingly trying to suppress some energy and emotions and everything else. But now, you know, it's an incredible basketball game and we should all be accustomed to it by now in the big 12 and two really good teams battling it out. A great crowd, obviously there in Manhattan. And, you know, it's a, we, we win so many of those games, but you're not going to win them all. So our guys will be better for it. And we all made it home alive and well, and uh, they got a great coach. They got a really good team. What's the protocol for an athletic director at a basketball game? Are you allowed to are you allowed to cheer like a normal fan or are you supposed to keep it relatively professional? So it, so it all depends on where you sit. So, you know, depending on where we're at and who's who we have as guests, oftentimes we'll bring we'll bring donor guests on these trips and in those scenarios oftentimes I'll sit behind the bench in the in the real stands and in that situation I'm just another rabid Jayhawk. I'm I'm up on my feet. I'm cheering. I'm yelling. I'm doing all the great things in, in an environment like yesterday where, you know, maybe I preferred a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of separation. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I vouched for or, or determined to opted to sit there at the scores table right next to the bench. In that situation, you got you got to behave and you got to kind of keep it under wraps. So it, it varies more often than not. I'm, I'm sitting in the stands with some of our fans and donors. That was that was that would be a tough game to to keep the emotions under wraps. That was uh, that was entertaining. I'm curious when when you're the athletic director at a at a school like Kansas, where you walk in, you already know what basketball does. They are as well oiled of a machine, I think, as you have in college athletics. I mean, whether you're talking about Alabama football, right? Kansas basketball is right there. You sort of know what to expect. You, you juxtapose that with what you were trying to do from day one with the football program. How do you view your role in the relationship with the basketball program where you know that they're kind of going to do what they do and, and they're so established yet 
also trying to add to it or elevate it? What is sort of that balance for you as an AD? Yeah, it's a, it's actually a great question, Nick. Honestly, there's not really a blueprint for it. I mean, for one, there's only one Kansas basketball. There's only one Bill Self, right? There's only one program that's done what this one dad has done for so long. And then that bar's just continued to be raised. When I got here, I, uh, you know, understandably, I really had to zero in on, on the football search and then on, on kind of getting our infrastructure and foundation set with, with Lance and company. Um, but at the same time, you know, as a Jayhawk and somebody who grew up with basketball kind of in my blood and, and seeing this program over, over years and decades, you know, one thing every day, and that is, as the athletic director, you, it may not be crystal clear on what specifically you're to do that day or that week to enhance and to support men's basketball, but you better know that you're doing something or at least have a lens out on what can we do to move Kansas basketball forward. It isn't uh, as, as much success as we've had. It isn't about just sustaining. It's about going, okay, this, this thing is sustained. What do we do to add layers to that? So how do we continue to look at, you know, investing in infrastructure and in facilities um, you've been in Allen, many of the listeners have been in Allen or most have, we know there's opportunity there and we know it's important because the statement you make about your experience now in Fieldhouse is a direct reflection on our investment in Kansas basketball. So there's an example as an athletic director, you have, you have significant responsibility, um, for is, is that investment. You know, you certainly think about the, the space of name, image, and likeness, and it's going to have, has had, will continue to have a profound impact on our ability to, you know, to, to, to have the kind of basketball program we've had over the years, you know, and that could be deserving opportunities for the current roster. Right. And um, does that come into play as they're considering, you know, professional opportunities and so on and so forth. Um, so be, being very much mindful and active in that particular space. Um, I think all those things kind of uh, speak to where you have a chance to influence that basketball program. With name, image, and likeness, I mean, it's it's so unchartered and trying to figure out how to excel and how to stand out amongst your, you know, your contemporaries. Do you get a sense of how you guys are doing? I know it's sort of, there is, there is like looking at it in a vacuum, how is Kansas doing? But is there a way for you to sort of compare yourself to other schools? and figure out sort of how you're doing, how you stack up against, you know, the other great athletic departments in the country. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly uh, an element where we really want to understand what's going on out there in the environment. What are some of the best practices? What are the, some of the more, I guess, say progressive ways to um, implement and provide opportunities in name, image, and likeness. But I think most of our focus has been, what do we think best suits KU? What do we think are whether it be localized, regionalized, you know, um, um, manners in which we can provide those opportunities. What fits KU's value system? Um, what are what are we seeing in the market, so to speak? What's the donor appetite? So I think we really try and spend most of our time and energy around what works here, and then what works here. What are we doing to maximize and, and you know, frankly, challenge supporters, business entities, and others? To, to be part of name, image, and likeness. And that's just, you know, there's a layer of then best practices, what others are doing. But if you spend too much time focusing on what you read and see and hear on Twitter about name, image, image and likeness, you'll, you'll lose your way, you know, and then you'll, you'll, you'll be um, probably a little bit obsessive about things that, that really don't matter 
when you think about your own place. How has the reception been that you talk about reaching out to people in the community, alumni, donors? What has been the reception for something that I would I would imagine in many instances, you're not just reaching out, but you're also in a way kind of explaining this to people because it is so new and, and uncharted. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say it's been, it's been thoughtful, right? It's been reflective of, you know, kind of our support base in this regard, you know, a year ago when name image and likeness was maybe six, seven months into existence, the industry, right. Couldn't even really describe it very well. Athletic directors, practitioners, coaches, students, I mean, they, they couldn't even really describe it. So how could we have, you know, in the first year expected our other constituents to fully grasp it? So honestly, you know, industry-wide, we really needed that year in my estimation to just go, what is it and what isn't it? And then how do opportunities manifest themselves? So our people, as we used education as that platform, took it in, were thoughtful, really asked questions, um, that's both businesses and, of course, individuals. And then as we got into year two of the space, I think we're seeing a lot more willingness to activate and, and get directly involved. And I think some of that is, is you know, really due to the success stories that we now have. Right. And those success stories are ones of, you know, frankly, deserving young people who, you know, they're working you know, so hard to represent our place, you know, blood, sweat and tears, that type of dynamic. And they're now able to earn, you know, uh, the, the, the finances to then be able to do something good with it. Right. It might be, you know, giving sending money back home, might be helping a parent or parents or family members get to games on the road. It might be like we've seen out of Ms. Basketball in particular, taking some of their own, um, uh, in, you know, return and donating back to nonprofits. And so I think as people have grasped that and understood that those are some of the stories that come from it. They've, there's been a lot more desire and willingness to to participate in it. So I'm I'm really in short I'm pleased with the with the trajectory. I'm really pleased with where we're at and where we're heading. I think in year two. So that kind of brings me to the football conversation because I know that's a big part of the focus for every football program, but specifically when Lance Leipold gets the contract extension and and what kind of your guys' vision for that program is in the in the near future. I want to go back to the beginning though. You get hired nearly 2 years ago, right? You right. immediately had to go out and find a new football coach. So what was that like starting this job by making the biggest decision that you may ever make in that job? What is that like because it seems like that is I mean throwing you into the deep end. Yeah, I mean, listen, one of the one of the really uh, positive aspects of that is by the time I got the call from the chancellor to be offered the opportunity to come back to KU and serve in this role, I'd already done as much research, as much homework, put together as much of a plan as I possibly could because you're, you know, you, you need that for the interview process, number one. And then, you know, if you're, if you're confident and you have a little bit of trust and faith in where that thing might end up, you need it because you know, you've got to start from from day one, from the jump, as soon as you get the opportunity. So in that regard, I felt I felt really prepared, literally from the time I arrived in Lawrence. And then it was about getting insights, feedbacks, getting getting buy-in, frankly, from uh, uh, the the community, so to speak. Which is, you know, that's current student athletes, that's staff, that's people in the industry, that's alumni, donors, etc. 
And once we had done that about 10 days, 11 days in, the plan was pretty well baked in terms of here's how we're going to go about executing it. We knew in April that it was a non-traditional time frame. We could be a little bit more diligent than you typically can in November, December. You know, your back's not against the, the wall necessarily as much as it is in the normal cycle when you're competing with other vacancies. And so that was a real, you know, to me, a real positive that I'm, I'm really thankful we had was the ability to do that search in April and, ha- and have, frankly, the attention of the, the coaching market in general. You talk about getting the support of, you know, alumni, donors, student athletes. I remember at your introductory press conference at the Lead Center, I had asked you, I said, you know, with all of the with the lack of success that Kansas football had had over the last decade, what gave you confidence that you could sort of write the ship? And I think what you just answered there maybe speaks to the the reason why I asked that question, because I felt like so many people and fans included felt like like is this going to be more of the same? We have seen ADs come in. We have seen coaches come in and everybody's sort of had their pitch or their idea for why this will be different. And it had just never worked out. So when you were speaking to those people, the alumni donors, student athletes, staff members, was there a common thread that you heard from them in terms of this is what needs to change or these are the mistakes or pitfalls that we need to avoid this time around that helped you kind of guide that decision? I mean, I, th- I think certainly to an extent, and you, you know, you hear uh, probably in particular one word that's so hard to put your finger on what it means, which is fit. Right. And I, I think it's probably easy in hindsight. You look back on any, whether it be any particular athletic department uh, uh, or any program across the country when there isn't as much success as people want, you often point to this idea that it wasn't a good fit. Well, what does that really mean? And then the, the bigger question is, what is the right fit for KU? And um, so we heard we heard a lot of that, right? You heard a lot about this idea of people who understood the, the maybe the Midwestern footprint, understood you know culturally uh, um, this type of community, this type of part of the country where it resonate both with recruits and fans and, and would have a deep appreciation for our state. Right. So somebody who really felt that wanted that wanted the Kansas aspect of it. And that would be a connection, a strong connection. I think, why do people want that? I think people really were hungry for continuity. They really hoped that we could hire somebody that was going to be the right fit, but somebody who's really going to want to be here at KU. And I, I know that was uh, at the forefront of our search throughout really trying to sift through that. It isn't, you know, we weren't looking to hear about, Oh, it's the power five opportunity or, Oh, I've all, you know, it's the big 12 or you guys haven't been that good. And so I, I can be that person. You really wanted people to describe why Kansas, why the university of Kansas, why our, our institution, our, our place. And, and, um, and that's one of the many things that Lance, did such a great job of it's in such an authentic way. So maybe that, that answers that this question, but when you're going through that interview process and you've got, you know, maybe down to a short list of three or four candidates, however it may have been, was there a moment in that deliberation process where you said, okay, this is my guy. Like at that point, I'd imagine you're impressed with all of these candidates, all of the ones that you are considering. So how do you really, laser focus in on what is going to be that deciding factor and what's 
you know, obviously going to be a monumental decision for you and for the athletic department. Yeah. yeah another great question. I mean, that think not, not a science necessarily to that, but my experience has been, and it, and it certainly fit with a, with the football search and with Lance is when you have somebody who throughout the process from, from, from first time you heard somebody else talk about him to first conversation with them to then in-person to then follow-ups and digging deep on all those different things. When you find that person who from start to finish is incredibly consistent, incredibly compelling in, in every way, you know, I'm not talking about like jumping through the screen with energy and passion and coach speak. I'm talking about like every moment you're just going, man, this feels like what we need at KU. This is about substance. This is about a, a guy with a plan, with a proven track record, with an identity, knows how to build and develop culture, right? So he was that throughout. What I find is when you when you see that kind of candidate, your scrutiny <laughs> increases. And that's the way I operate, is I become more in, you know, more laser focused on trying to poke holes in that candidacy. Mm -hmm. Why aren't they a fit? Why aren't they somewhere else? Why hasn't somebody already found uh, uh, hired them, so to speak? So I think in the case of of Lance, and it's to me the ultimate compliment to Lance is, I was looking for reasons why why he wasn't the guy. By the time we got a half <laughs> at the halfway point or two thirds of the way in, and he would tell you he jokes about it today. I mean, you know, I'm I'm calling like his you know his second grade teacher to to learn about him <laughs> at that point in his life, right? Because mm -hmm. that's just how diligent we wanted to be. Um, and honestly, you know, honestly, I could speak probably to the other two hires that we've made since I've been here is, has been in women's golf with Lindsay cool and in, in baseball with Dan Fitzgerald. I mean, similarly, those two from the jump just had this steadying, calming, confidence building presence. And they weren't on this, like, they didn't bring you on this roller coaster, yeah. so to speak. And I'm, it was the same. I'm going, there's got to be something to to it. Got to poke holes in it because they're you know they're almost too good to be true. Yeah. Um, so th those are kind of that's kind of the approach I think we we've taken with it. When you're making that hire, or when you made that hire, I guess, what were your expectations at the time, short and long term? Like if I would have asked you the day you hired Lance Leipold, what would constitute a success for Kansas football over the next, let's say five years? What would your answer have been back then? Yeah. Um, great question. I'll tell you what, what I observe kind of coming in, you know, having a couple weeks being around spring practice, they were at the kind of at the close of, of spring ball. And so I was able to get out to practices, be around the guys, talk to the guys about what they were looking for. You know, a lot of the same great young men that just perform so well for us this fall that are represent our place so exceptionally well, but honestly, they didn't have an identity, right? They didn't, they didn't have an aligned vision for where they wanted to go. And that's by the way, totally expected They had a major transition with head coach to interim and all this instability and uncertainty. So it's precisely what you would expect. So I think what the short answer to that question is, what did I, hope for in a short-term manner. And I'd call short-term 18 to 24 months, uh, you know, without the science behind that time frame. But I would say, I would hope that we'd have a program with a, with a strong culture, a, a strong identity, aligned and shared values and aligned and shared vision for where they were trying to go. 
and then by that 18 to 24 month time frame, have stability with the roster, right? Where it wasn't a revolving door of transfers out, you know, can't, can't retain, guys aren't really buying in. And so that took two or three years. I really hoped a year, year and a half going into, you know, maybe year three, that that would be steady and strong and stable. And you can imagine, Nick, what, what that tells us is, are these guys ahead of schedule? Absolutely. Because the that stuff was in place probably going into this fall, quietly, subtly in place. And that's in so many ways why this team, in my estimation, was ready to take the jumps that they made that they took this fall. And and again, about anybody's description way ahead of schedule. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any question about that. And you know, I, I always from the outside looking in in terms of how you can tell the culture has changed from a KU fans point of view, the calendar hit November and people weren't already just ready to talk about basketball and football being a footnote anymore. Like that's a, it's a, that's a very unscientific way to judge, you know, how you feel the change, but it's so true. Like people were still talking about football. What are you doing on Saturday? Are you going to the game? Where are you tailgating? Those sorts of things from your chair, how did you notice the difference? Like what's the easiest way for you to just tell or point to how the, the culture and the, this, the vibes around that program have changed over the last two years? You know, um, they showed glimmers last year. I think I'll, I'll use, uh, well, we can use a couple different examples, but I think not conceding to adversity in the early part of the fall, you know, you go on the road to, to West Virginia, right? I think we went down 14, nothing early in that game. You're on the road, tough place to play. All we, you know, we, we'd had our opener the week prior. And then all of a sudden that group, they just didn't, they didn't flinch. They didn't lose their confidence. They didn't concede to the adversity or the pressure and responding in that manner that early against a really solid football team in Morgantown, I think was, was one of those indicators, whether, you know, we obviously won the game. If we hadn't won the game, I still, I would still look back on that and go, damn, that's, that's indicative of a program that's on the right track. Um, I think another example I'd use, uh, taken away from kind of stepping away from the, the team specific is again, one of the things that I've had a, maybe a unique opportunity, uh, to do over my first 20 months or so is, to really get to know a lot of the guys individually, right? Because to do a hire, you got to talk to the guys. You got to know what are they looking for? What do they want? And then you're around the program more. So you're talking to the guys individually. So what I was able to see that were showing up before outcomes on the field where there's this incredibly rapid individualized growth. And I'm going, I'm thinking to myself, usually pretty quietly, not talking about it much, but I'm going to eat. These aren't the same young men, how they've matured, their commitment, their accountability within the program, their understanding of what they're trying to achieve. And then you layer in physical transformation. What was happening in terms of that strength and conditioning program with Coach Gildersleeve, on and on and on. You're seeing these different individual storylines. And if the culture's good, and if identity's coming in place, then you know those that individual growth is going to help equate to the team outcomes. So those are some of the observations I had going, going back to last, certainly last spring in that first spring ball together. 
when you think about it, when you say how, how far ahead of schedule this football program is from, I think even the most optimistic fans would have thought they would have been able to do in two years with that comes circumstances that maybe you didn't foresee. So what was it like going through a season where the football program beginning of the year, I mean, one of the best stories in college football, five and O start college game day. You got a Heisman candidate. You got a coach of the year candidate, all this, a positive attention, which naturally makes other schools start peeking their head over the fence saying, okay, what's going on over there? What's the deal with this uh, Lance Leipold guy, right? All of a sudden there is new interest in, in your coach, our darling coach, the guy that we love. So how do you handle that balance of this is great versus okay, do we have to start playing defense and make sure we don't lose this guy that's building something special for us? Uh, yeah, I, I probably didn't enjoy this fall as much as I would have liked to, but, but, but in really, I think in a positive way, because I don't know why an athletic director role exists or, you know, high, higher level administrators and athletic departments exist if they don't take ownership of those moments. And I just, you know, knew as the season got jumping in front. In fact, I even, I even made this mistake. I told Lance, I don't know. I, I might've told him right after we hired him. I might've told him, you know, after two and 10 or this summer, I might've said it a couple of times. I said, Lance, don't worry about your contract. Cause he did not that he ever brought it up. He never brought it up once. So I said, don't worry about your contract. I jumped into this and I said, we're going to get that right. It's going to be reflective of a place that is committed to football at a very high level. Cause if you, you know, you know what his initial contract was and you look at what's going on there nationally, it wasn't reflective of a place that was committed to football at a very high level. It was appropriate for when we brought him on board. So I said that in advance of any of the success this season. And a lot of that was, I think, to really challenge me and challenge our institution to think about this in a, in a, in a, from a bigger context. What would it mean if in five or seven or whatever years down the road, if we had continuity with our head coaching position, what would it mean if we had some continuity with that staff? What would that mean if we invested in the infrastructure that football desperately needs? What would that mean if we challenged our fan base to come along on this journey? And what would the returns on that be? And the returns are immeasurable. I mean, we've left tens of millions of dollars on the table with our inability to, to get football healthy here. Right. Yeah. We've also distributed many, a many, a million for the wrong reasons. And I was intent on, a, on this, not being another one of those stories. And so it was, you know, it was as rewarding of, 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 of a journey, I think as we could have, which was to preemptively get ahead of the market and say, the university of Kansas doesn't have to lose a great head football coach. And, and that's, that was the mindset. That was the buy-in from the chancellor, um, uh, from our department. And, and it played out exactly as it should have with that kind of approach. So you guys get the, the extension done in a way you give, you give Lance Leipold a contract extension, but you're also very entrenched in that contract, I'm sure you know as well as anybody how much you're going to be linked to the hires that you make specifically with the football program. So when you look at some of the details in that contract, and I think the overarching theme is just the commitment to continuing to invest and build that football program, 
When you see that in his contract, does that in a way feel like it's a commitment to what your mission is and has been as the athletic director? Uh, I think, yeah, I think to, to some extent, but what I, what I really like about what that statement makes honestly is, um, you know, the athletic director is just a conduit for a broader institution's uh, values and a broader institution's priorities. So when you see, you know, Travis Goff or athletic director referenced in that contract, what excites me is I'm an extension of University of Kansas. That means that it's saying that the University of Kansas will continue to be committed and invested in football at KU. And that's the most, to me, the most exciting part of it. If I get hit by a bus, the commitment and the investment from the University of Kansas isn't going to, isn't going to wane. Right. I'm proud to be a part of it. I'm proud to help have been a catalyst for it, but that's not going to wane and that's not going to change because of what has occurred over this, you know, call it this last six, seven months. And so I think that's the, that's the exciting statement that that, that contract reflects is it's broader than even this athletic department. It, it extends across the university. And I think it, it's a reflection of our alumni base's belief in that as well. I don't know if you've given this much thought, but I know in my time following, covering this athletic department, I mean, there was about a decade span in the early 2000s where there were stories about an athletic director not getting along with the former basketball coach. New AD comes in. He doesn't get along with the football coach. Like there have been these things happening within the athletic department where you just don't have maybe guys who are in lockstep and what their goals are for the programs or the athletic department. And now seeing that sort of relationship or the antithesis of that relationship happening with you and Leipold, I think is very, very refreshing for a lot of Kansas fans. How would you describe what your relationship is with Lance? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, it, it is in, in many ways, you know, tethered because of, the, the similar time frame of which we started here and that journey together. Um, but I think it's kind of built on a couple things. I think it's built on, you know, honesty and, and, and transparency, transparency, right. There just isn't something that, uh, both, both, whether you use bill or whether you use Lance that, um, I would hold back from them. You know, I want them to, to, uh, and all of our coaches, honestly, but really in those two examples to understand precisely my mindset on something where we're trying to go, why, they might disagree with the way I see things. Um, and then I think, you know, one of the core attributes of, I think, a successful relationship is having humility. Like it, it is it is never going to be about the athletic director. It, it can't be because <laughs> that's such a minor piece of what we're trying to achieve here. So having humility, understanding that the, the, those two in particular have to be the faces of our of our athletic department in a lot of ways. And we're so proud that they are because they represent us so exceptionally well. And then more importantly, it's about the student athletes. So I think when you set aside personal agendas, that at, very, at the very least, when things get strained, you're going to work your way through it. Because this industry certainly creates strain with administrators and, and with head coaches at this level. But you work your way through it with honesty, humility, and transparency. And, and it, you know, it gets you right back on, on the track you need to be on. I believe it was Ju July 1st, 2023 is is the date referenced in Leipold's contract extension, making meaningful progress towards uh, renovations. I don't know what the exact verbiage is towards Memorial Stadium and Anderson Family Football Complex. So 
Um, if you want to use a six-month timeline, a 12-month timeline, by the time the football season starts, what are your hopes for the noticeable differences that fans will see at the football complex or the players will see at the yeah. football complex or at the stadium here over, you know, whatever time frame you want to use? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing both both Lance and I, and I give a lot of credit to Lance, uh, frankly, wanted to know and understand is what can we show the young men in the program by this next season? And that's a great question to ask. You know, again, you think about retention, think about continuity, you think about showing investment that the, you know, these are young people who many of whom aren't going to be around more than this next season, right? So you want to show something tangible. And, and that's what is referenced in that July timeframe. In essence, by the time they report for fall camp in late July, there will be tangible, noticeable, significant investments and renovations done in Anderson. And that's where we're, we're tracking really in a great way, an exciting way. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, share more on that as we get deeper into the spring, because it'll be of that kind of significance to share with our support base. And, and certainly when we think about recruiting, the specifics of those investments in Anderson that are literally construction will be commencing in the next, I don't know, it's less than three months. It's closer probably to two to two and a half months when we'll have construction commencing. And then the other um, uh, reference in the contract is around some kind of meaning, meaningful activity for the stadium project. And again, in 2023, the commitment has been there will be meaningful uh, uh, work occurring as it relates to the state. That might be really important site, you know, prep work. That might mean, you know, whatever degree of, of, uh, of getting the site prepared for major construction, et cetera. So it's on a great track and, and certainly we're, we're going to be um, transparent and share specifics as we get further along this year. Everybody loves renderings. Everybody loves stadium rendering. Do we have state? You don't have to tell me what they look like, but do you have the stadium renderings yet? Based on the fact that everybody loves renderings, which I love renderings too, by the way, (laughs) that's precisely why we didn't put renderings out in uh, October (laughs) when we announced the project, because what, what we put, listen, here's the thing that, you know, this being a, being a Jayhawk, we put renderings out before, right? Yeah. What's multiple times. Yeah. What's more important than a rendering? What's more important than a rendering is literally being able to say that um, these specific dates, these specific targets, and to this specific magnitude, here's what we're going to achieve. Not here's what we hope if all these different things fall into place, it's literally here's what we're going to achieve. And so by, by making that statement in October, that in 2023, this journey is literally going to be And there it is. Yeah, so I was wrapping up the interview, had a couple more questions on some renovations, like, you know, the stuff I really wanted to get to about Allen Fieldhouse Memorial Stadium. And my computer just decided that, you know what, Nick, we're going to shut down here for about 15 minutes. No real reason why. This has never happened before. But your computer is now locked. It's going to go black screen. And uh, maybe you can hop back on in 20 minutes. Unfortunately for me, Uh, Athletic directors at Power 5 major uh, universities don't exactly have 20 minutes to sit around and wait for podcast guy to get his shit together. So uh, wasn't able to get any of that. But how's that for a cliffhanger? Renderings? Renovations? When are they coming? I guess you'll have to wait for part two of my interview with Travis Goff. Big thanks to Travis for joining me. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. And uh, yeah, 
Sorry that I couldn't get you uh, the rest of that answer there from Travis Goff. All right, let's do a little mailbag. I'll send these prompts out every week on Twitter. That's at Nick underscore short. Send me your questions there each week when I send out the prompt, or you can just send them to me intermittently, and uh, we'll try to get to them here on the show. First question for today. In 2016, Josh Jackson got 2,017 seconds in the first three minutes of the game. Very specific. We couldn't recover. We saw foul trouble on one impact us in Atlantis. Foul trouble impacted us on Tuesday against K-State. Is this the Achilles heel to the seven-man rotation? Who hurts us this way in March? Um, so really what this, what this question is about is the lack of depth. It's a seven-man rotation, but even to that point, the six and seven guys aren't giving you a ton of minutes. Right now, if I'm looking at Kim Palm, uh, KU gets 22.7% of their minutes from the bench. That probably doesn't mean anything to you without context. It rates 334th in the country. I know you're thinking, wow, that's a big number, but there's a lot of teams in college basketball. Yes, there are, but not many more than 343. That's 343 out of 363. That means there are 19 teams who get less playing time from their bench than Kansas does. If I just look at the conference stats, so six games under your belt, the Kansas bench has scored 55 points in six games, so less than 10 points per game combined from the bench during conference play. Simply put, I think we're all on the same page here. Got to get more from the bench. We can talk about foul trouble and and things like that. You have to get more production from the bench. You don't need a bunch of guys to chip in. You don't need everybody to improve, whether that's Bobby becoming like a a, a 20-minute-per-game guy or Joe becoming that dude. Zach Clemens seems to be earning more trust and respect from the coaching staff in recent weeks. Will that continue? I'm not ready to go there quite yet. Whatever the case is, it's not just that you need more minutes from the bench. You need them to be able to contribute because right now you're already relying so heavily on basically two guys to carry your offense. And I guess now we can start to have the conversation of throwing K.J. Adams into that mix with the scoring tear that he's been on. Even if it's three, it's not enough. You need more guys to pitch in. And that doesn't mean they have to do it every single night, right? When you talk about bench guys, you don't need, let's just use Bobby Pettiford as an example. You don't need him to come in every single night and give you eight points. But you need him to have the ability, or Zach, or Joe, to come in on a given night and give you 10 or 12 off the bench. Just be that spark plug who can sort of chip in when it's an off night for one of those dudes who have been incredibly reliable for you. So I don't think it really, like the foul trouble stuff is one aspect of it. Bill's never really went deeper than eight into the bench. The problem this year is that even when he goes into that seven-man rotation, eight-man rotation, you're just not getting a lot of production from those guys, and that's just going to have to change. You don't have to rely heavily upon your bench. You don't need a deep bench because, as the saying goes, by the time you get to March, that rotation's going to be down to seven, six of whom you actually trust. Bill Self's been the king of that. He's going to keep the rotation tight in March, but you just need to have some guys that you have faith in, that you believe in, 
that can give you quality minutes because you will need it. You won't need it for six games in March, but you're going to need it for one. You're going to need it for one or two games when the starters aren't on, when shots aren't falling. You, you need that guy to come in off the bench and provide you with quality minutes. And right now, that's just been pretty hit or miss for this team. All right, next question comes to us from Eli. Eli asks, did last night, did Tuesday night, really affect any of your thoughts or opinions on this team? Seems like a perfect storm happened and still only lost by one in overtime on the road. Yeah, and I would add two, one of your biggest rivals and a top 15 team in the country. Uh, in short, no, it didn't affect my opinion on this team. I thought I thought the where they were ranked was not quite indicative of how they'd been playing. Like, I didn't think KU was the number two team in the country. I don't. I think you know, teams like Houston, Tennessee, I would still put ahead of them. UCLA, I would still put ahead of them. Uh, in terms of just teams that impress me more, maybe. Like, I still like, I think Arizona's a really good basketball team. UConn's sort of floundering as of late. I'm not giving up on them. Purdue's really good. Alabama might be the best team. KU's in the mix with those teams. But... They, like everybody else, do have shortcomings. And I think f- with all those sh- those close wins that they've been getting by with, that's just not sustainable. You, I mean, there may, there may be a, an art form to winning close games, and Bill Self's a big part of that. But, yeah, it did seem like a perfect storm, and it seemed like whether it was against K-State or somebody else, they were going to drop one of these games eventually. I don't think they were exposed in any way by Kansas State that is going to make me rethink where I think they belong sort of in the national conversation of the best college basketball teams. They've got things they got to work on, areas they need to get better at, but for the most part, this is still kind of the exact team I thought they'd be. All right, this is sort of a combination question because I got two or three different questions that were basically asking the same thing, all about Kevin McCuller, uh, is it time to maybe play Joe Yesifu more? Is it time to play Bobby Pettiford more? He's been in a slump lately. What do you do to get this guy out of the funk that he's been in? So Kevin McCuller, these last three games, I think he had, I mean, he had zero against K-State. He had eight in the two prior to that. And the shots haven't really been falling. Uh, is he slumping? Here, here's what I would tell you. Kevin McCuller is new to Kansas, so you don't have three years of tape or that you're watching diligently to know how he plays. Let me just go ahead and tell you this about Kevin McCuller. Kevin McCuller is doing at Kansas this year basically the exact same thing he was doing at Texas Tech the prior two years. He's not in a slump. This is just who he is. He's averaging 10 points per game, seven rebounds, shooting 50% from inside the arc, 30% from three-point range. He's shooting 30% from three-point range. He shot 31% from three last year at Texas Tech. He's shooting 43% from the field. He shot 40% from the field last year at Texas Tech. So his shooting is actually up. His three-point shooting is about what it's always been. This is who Kevin McCuller is. I think there was optimism. You know, talking to a few guys before the season, they thought that maybe his shot was better than his numbers had indicated and Maybe being around better players would help bring that out. Turns out, no. This is just who... Here's what Kevin McCuller's going to do. He's a smart basketball player. He's going to move the ball well. He's not a great shooter, but he's one of the nation's elite defenders. The dude is averaging over two and a half steals per game. You know how ridiculous that is? 
elite defender, average shooter, not a great scorer, but he's a really smart, high IQ, high-level basketball player. I know maybe you want more from him, but I'm here to tell you, he is giving you exactly what I thought he was going to give this team. This is who he's always been. It's going to be who he always will be. Now, I know sometimes you fall in love with the idea of like, well, if he can only add a three-point shot, that's projecting. There was no reason to think that all of a sudden he was going to come to Kansas and become uh, a 37% three-point shooter. In his three seasons at Tech, he shot 29%, 28%, 31% from three-point range. All below average. That's exactly what he's doing here. He can get hot, but, like, this guy's just not a shooter. He's not a scorer. His value is felt in other areas. I, just like you, wish he could be a more efficient scorer, but he has given you three and a half years now of college basketball to show you that's not who he's going to be. So, I mean, I I guess you could say he's in a slump. He scored eight points in each of the the last two games before the K-State game. This is just who he is. You may not like it, but this is, I think, what Kansas expected to get when they signed him and got him to, to come over from Tech in the offseason. So I guess my my antenna has just not gone up on him being any sort of an issue for this team. This is just who he is. All right, we'll make this the last question. This has been kind of a, a long episode, but we've got a lot of good ones, so I apologize if I didn't get to yours. Maybe we can get to them next week. Uh, last question here. This comes to us from Sue Kwan. Great name. What do you think is the main reason the freshmen are being held back so much from being integrated into Self's lineup. Is that too difficult to meddle with in the middle of conference play? Is that down to the coaching staff seeing how they are developing in practice? I think this is uh, a twofold. There's not like one overarching answer to this question, but it just depends on what your role is and what you do well. Like we've seen Bill Self play freshman a lot, right? Especially lately. Like he's come around on this a lot over the last five or six years. I mean, Grady Dick's a perfect example of that. There's a reason why Grady Dick's playing. He's one of the best players on the team. Devon Dotson, Quentin Grimes, like these are guys who played right away. If Doak wouldn't have gotten injured his freshman year, he probably would have been the starter all season. If you're good enough to play, you'll play. But I think what you're really asking about is, what about that next tier of guys? Guys like on this team, Ernest Uday, right? Zuby Ejifer, MJ Rice may be somebody in that mix where you'd say, okay, like I know they're not stars right now, but maybe they could be helping out a little bit more. And the big, the the common thing I heard so long, and I mentioned this in the open is that guys like Cliff Alexander, it was 2015. This team needed a rim protector, needed a shot blocker. He was like, what the number three player in the country. And people wondered like, why isn't this guy playing more? Why is Jamari trailer or, Hunter Mickelson playing over this guy when he's clearly got the highest ceiling and they would point to per 40 numbers, which I always thought was hilarious, pointing to the per 40 numbers for a guy who's playing six minutes a game. It's like, hey, you, you, we need to break down the math on this and why this might not be completely accurate of what this dude's capable of. There's always been this sort of uh, frustration from fans where you see the talent and you wonder why the guy can't stay on the floor or why Bill Self gets so frustrated. And I think you probably know the answer to that, which is there's so much more to what this coaching staff and what Self is going to ask of these guys than just like, hey, get a rebound, get a point. And a lot of it is, you know, running sets offensively. 
This even actually was a big part of the conversation last year with Remy Martin. He wasn't a freshman, but he was new to the program, and he had a very specific style of play that he wanted to to use when he's out there. The problem with with letting these guys, quote-unquote, play through their mistakes, that's been what I've heard a lot of people say. Let them play through their mistakes, and the reasoning behind it or the justification for it is that let them play through their mistakes because even though they may not be great right now, if you play them now, they're going to develop, and by the time you get to the NCAA tournament, they're more ready to contribute, right? Let them take their lumps now so that they are farther along when the games matter the most. I understand that theory, but what it doesn't take into account is the fact that when you're letting guys play through mistakes early in the season, you can't just isolate that player. Like if I want to use, let me use Ernest Uday as an example because he's not playing, and I could easily do MJ Rice because he's not playing either. You could say, well, Actually, let's do MJ Rice because everybody loves KJ Adams, and so nobody's really clamoring for Uday that all that much. Maybe as a secondary big, but let's use MJ Rice because you see this guy, big broad shoulders, kind of looks like Wayne Selden, just like NBA ready body. He he's got that get off the bus look to him where you'd say, "Can we? Is there any way to utilize this guy's skill set? Let's let him learn through his mistakes." But it's not just him learning through his mistakes, and it's not just like maybe him impacting the game. In a way, if if you don't know where you're supposed to be defensively, if you don't know your assignment, if you don't know what you're supposed to be doing in these, and what at this point in the season, a pretty limited offensive set of plays that you're actually running. Like a lot of teams aren't running a ton of offensive sets. If you don't know where you're supposed to be, right? If you're in the wrong spot when you're supposed to be cutting or you're supposed to be setting in a screen or you're supposed to be in the corner and all of a sudden you've sort of faded up to the wing and now the spacing is off, you're not just impacting yourself. You're impacting the other four guys on the floor in a negative way. So your, your learning curve is now hindering the team's ability to get better. The team's ability to not just in the in the micro of win this game, get a a bucket on this possession, but for them to progress and for them to sort of learn and get and develop that chemistry on the court together. And that's just not a sacrifice Bill Self has been willing to make. I'm not going to hold the rest of the team back just so you can get a little bit better. Right? It's your job to fit into what we're doing. It's not our job to sort of halt the progress of everybody else on the court just so that you can get a little bit better. Other coaches coach differently than that, but that's always been the Bill Self philosophy. And you don't have to necessarily agree with it, but it's served him pretty well over the years. I think he has gotten more flexible in recent years of letting guys kind of learn through mistakes. But for the most part, it's up to you to get up to speed. And I think maybe that's part of that's a motivational tactic, but part of it's just a, why would I punish the other four guys just so that you can get a little bit better? So I think that's the main reason. I don't know, uh, you know, how Bill Self would answer that differently, but I mean, he's been pretty steadfast on the fact that like, it's not our job to fit this guy in. It's his job to fit in with us. All right. That's going to do it for this episode. Again, if you have questions, 
You can always send them to me on Twitter at Nick underscore Schwert, and I'll try and get to them in the next podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, review, wherever you're listening. It means the world to me. Thank you so much for spending a few minutes with me today. We'll talk to you next week. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us, and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. 